Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your care for us. We are grateful that you have put us in this place at this time. And we don't believe that any of that is by accident. And in the midst of that, we have to navigate the difficult waters of the realities that our city faces and our nation faces. And, and it's not easy. And yet, I believe that your word speaks to that and that you can guide us and direct us and that your spirit can fill us and empower us. And so, so we pray that, that you would move in power tonight in our hearts and in our church and in this place, that you'd bring clarity, that you would bring confrontation where we need it and comfort where we need it. And so we lift this time to you tonight, trusting that you can do all this and even greater. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up um, with me to Acts chapter 19, or click there on your phone. Um, that's where we'll settle in tonight as we continue to see the third missionary journey of Paul. We've been tracking the book of Acts and seeing that throughout the book of Acts, it began with Jesus' commission to his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's like six of you that were with me tonight. Last week was so strong. <laughs> um, and so this, this witness, this, and we saw last week that the word of God continued to advance and to spread and to multiply with power. And, and that as Paul's ministry came to Ephesus and brought some corrective theologically that showed the beauty of the life that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And so we've been following that. And today the ministry continues in Ephesus and um, the temperature gets turned up in that city in the text that's in front of us today. And I think this speaks to us, not that it's a one-to-one -one correlation at all, but I think it has something for us because we are in a cultural context in our city, in our nation, um, really that we're seeing some global phenomena that are showing, showing the temperature being turned up in relationship that people have with each other and clashes of culture that seem to be getting more deeply divided as the days go by. Uh, cultural clash has been on full display this past week in our city. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, then you should tune in to local news. I think in, in D.C., we sometimes get tuned in more broadly to national news because we pay attention and we're caught up in the news cycle more and we know what's going on broadly. And because people come to our town to, for, for their various protests and marches and they come in and raise their voice and then leave their trash all over the National Mall and leave it in piles for us to pick up. And so we get used to being tuned to the national discussion, and I think at times we can overlook some of the deeper things that are happening locally, and I'm, I want to challenge you not to, not to allow yourself to do that. Um, and so this last week, if you haven't heard about this, you need to be aware that there was a major cultural clash that got, that got blown up this week, and it happened, it was centered on a small Metro PCS cell phone shop in Shaw. For years, even decades, the shop has pumped go-go music and a speaker out on the sidewalk. And 
Go-Go Music is the heart and the soul of DC. And so the Metro PCS was bought out by T-Mobile. T-Mobile said, you've got to shut that down and bring it inside. And that, that in changing the, the standards for that shop, there was a major uproar. I was saying, what in the world? This is Chocolate City. How do you say you can't play go-go out on the streets and you've got to bring it inside and this is gentrification at its worst? And, and since then, T-Mobile has reversed the decision and so the go-go is back out on the street. And, but in the midst of that, there's something that was shown in the midst of that conflict that is, is real in this place. There was a Washington Post article back on March 19th, just about a month ago, that the title, the headline of the article was, D.C. has the highest intensity of gentrification of any U.S. city. And they cited neighborhoods like Petworth and Mount Pleasant and Brookline and U Street Corridor and 14th Street Corridor, neighborhoods that are changing rapidly. And it's not just here. It's in cities across the country, the major cities across the country. And so there's these same issues are coming up in, in clashes and in culture in New York, in L.A., in Philly, in Baltimore, in San Diego, in Chicago. And it's complicated because it's, there's something good to resources flowing into cities and lifting up neighborhoods. That's good, but displacement and cultural loss are not. But listen, today we're not going to untangle the difficult not to solve gentrification. But there's something happening in these clashes that goes beyond simple economics. There's values that are clashing, and I think it shows something deeper than values as well. And these aren't limited to even the things I've mentioned. There's a divide culturally that's gotten hotter and hotter. And so with that, we come to a, a tense moment in the city of Ephesus. Again, we're in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to begin in verse 21 tonight. And so Paul, the apostle, had been there preaching the gospel. We, God was moving in power through him. People were being healed and demons cast out. But most of all, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so this is what we read next. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There's danger not only to this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go into the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And some, even some of, his, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now, some cried out about one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go through, return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philadelphia after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so this is in Ephesus. A riot started. And Ephesus, remember, is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was the administrative center for the province of Asia. And that's why even in this text, we have rulers over that province, the Asiarchs, who were friends of Paul's and were cautioning him not to go into the theater. Um, it was a major commercial city, a commercial city, a center of the region, um, and it had a temple to Artemis just outside the city walls that, that was the glory of the city. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, with, decorated with works of the greatest painters and sculptors, and so, and so this was the glory of the city, and here that temple is referenced directly. Um, now, this week, I think what, if, when we understand Ephesus, it helps us to be able to picture... I mean, these are real places that, the, that our author, Dr. Luke, is describing. And so as he describes these, they are real places that you can still go see now. And that's why it's important, even that closing section, when it's talking about the people that Paul was traveling with and the places he went and the times and details of how that travel worked, to understand this is true story, true account. It's not simply mythology. And so in, in these real places, this week, it's been killing me, church, because there's a group of Acts 29 pastors. We're part of the Acts 29 network. It's a network of churches that plant new churches. And there's a group of my friends that are also pastors in our network that have spent the week touring the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, together. And that including Pastor Lucas Parks, who is the pastor of Village Belfast, who we've been supporting in a church partnership with for six or seven years now. And so while I'm in my office laboring away about the, the riot in Ephesus, Lucas was posting pictures in the theater where the riot occurred. You jerk. <laughs> I am so jealous. And so if we see these pictures, 
of Ephesus. It is possible to see here. One of the things that you can notice is that this is the major thoroughfare of the city, the major street that ran through the center of the city. And so it's not hard to see why when a riot happened and people were angry and they spilled into these streets, that they were funneled toward that theater. Now, the theater could seat 25,000 people. And so it was, it was a massive space, and this is the space that the riot happened in. You could go see it today. Lucas did this week. Um, and so it is still there. This is where the riot happened that, that in Ephesus over the issues of the Apostle Paul being there. Um, and so that amphitheater is still standing. Now, for us, how does this intersect with us? Well, as we look at what happened in Ephesus, the temple to Artemis, or Diana, the goddess, was, some, was seen as under threat, whether or not it was an actual threat. And in that, we've seen how idolatry plays itself out in people's lives. We've, we've seen and we've talked about the idolatry of our own souls on an individual level. But here in Ephesus, we see things playing out on a bigger scale as the, as the culture and idolatry of this city was threatened. And so we're going to begin tonight by talking about the importance of understanding the idols of a city. That's what was under threat in Ephesus. Now, culture itself is, is largely neutral, and I think there's times when we, we like to think otherwise and look at, at other cultures than we've grown up in and think that, and we tend to value those differently, but culture itself is largely neutral. There's things that we can receive or reject or redeem about any culture. But this isn't just about culture in, Athens, in Ephesus. What we see in Ephesus is, is it goes beyond just culture that idolatry had set in. And when idolatry sets in, things change. And we do see this in our broader culture. That, that politics have, become, have taken on a level of identity. Um, even in the, over the past few weeks, there was a New York Times article that I felt like it could have been written by a pastor. It was talking about how, as people have walked away from formalized institutional religion, they've actually just made a religion out of politics. And I was like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. That's idolatry. They didn't use that language in the New York Times, um, but it is exactly what was described. Because politics have come to take on an identity level, a place that they were not designed to take. Economics and socioeconomics have taken on an identity status that they cannot sustain. And it, what it's led to is it's led to deeper divides. It's led to xenophobia, a fear or hatred of the other. And this happens across the board. It leads to fear-driven mindsets and policies, and it leads to reactionary, uh, um, ever-escalating responses that only serve to dig deeper into bunkers where we anticipate the war that's coming. I mean, look at what was, what was said here, that people were, were coming together. They went into the theater. Everybody was crying out and yelling together. They were filled with confusion, though. And then verse 32, now some cried out about one thing, some cried out another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. There may be no better and clearer definition of today's social media world than that. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's yelling. Some are yelling about one thing. Some are yelling about another thing. Nobody actually knows why they're there. And, and still, the, the temperature is turned up. This is because, as we understand, as we can try to understand idolatry at a cultural and citywide level, we need, we need to understand that, that, similar to a personal level, idols can never deliver on what they promise. 
Idols promise identity and protection and hope. It's a way for us to shape our understanding of who we are and and believe that we're going to be safer because of it and and find hope in a trajectory of where we believe things ought to head. And so this this happens, uh, just to be clear here, to identify an idol, I think the reformer Martin Luther can help us. He said, "It's it's the trust of the faith and heart alone that makes both God an idol. That it's the affections of our hearts are drawn towards something, and that's worship. And we have a tendency to worship things that cannot actually provide hope for us. Jesus is the only Savior who fully knows us and still loves us, who gave himself up for us and will forgive us when we fail him. And so the message that Paul had been proclaiming in this place is is that the call of Jesus is not just to feel bad about our sins and to repent, but to believe that he is one who died in our place for our sin and was raised to life and ascended to the heavens. And we can turn a belief in repentance today, and it changes everything. Because our identity is as a son or daughter of our creator, made in his image and likeness, and through Christ, that image and likeness is renewed and restored and reshaped within us. We, we have the protection of the presence of God in, through his spirit guaranteed to us and the hope that nothing can be taken from us because we have an inheritance in eternity in the kingdom of light. Idols can't deliver that. They'll never deliver what they promise. They will always let you down, and if you let them down, you'll suffer for it. And when idols are threatened, the response is violent. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see it here, that the response is violent. We see it in our own culture, that the divides that exist. This past couple of weeks with burning black churches in Louisiana, deep divides that continue to get entrenched over over what to do about immigration and borders, divides over, over mindsets and culture that exist between urban and suburban and rural groups of people, ethnic divisions and socioeconomic divisions and regional and culture, cultural divisions and, re, and religious divisions, and, and it does spill into violence and riots in the streets. Now, even here, we need to be careful and, and understand that that this isn't saying that the riots that happen are a one-to-one correlation with Acts 19 and Ephesus here. I think, again, here, Dr. King is helpful when is he recognized that riots don't develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must, must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But, but in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And maybe nobody understands, or perhaps no one understands, the violent response of cultural idols like Dr. King, whose life was taken from him on April 4th, 1968. I mean, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. Um, Not your typical Palm Sunday text or message, I know. But on Palm Sunday, what we know is that Jesus was headed into Jerusalem. He went in riding on a donkey as a symbol of peace, and he had, he had people that were with him from Galilee that were crying out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And crying out to him with palm fronds on the ground, ushering him into Jerusalem as a, as a king and into the city of peace. And by Friday, he was killed. Now, let's not be mistaken there. 
It's not like Jesus was surprised. I think sometimes we can tell the Holy Week story that way. Like Jesus came in and everybody loved him and then, that, then all of a sudden everybody turned on him and hated him and they were so fickle. And, and then on Good Friday, we get to Good Friday and, and feel like we need to feel bad for Jesus. And I don't think that's actually helpful. Jesus knew what he was going for. He had told his disciples for three years, hey, it's necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. It's necessary for me to get arrested and to suffer and to die, and on the third day I'm going to be raised. And then they got to Jerusalem, and his disciples couldn't believe it when they got there and he was arrested. And Peter tried to take out a sword and go after the high priest's servant and missed and got his ear. And then they were surprised when Jesus was killed and they scattered. They didn't expect him to raise from death to life, even though he had said it over and over again to them. And they were surprised when the tomb was empty. They were surprised when he showed up to them. And they were surprised when he ascended to heaven. But Jesus knew why he was there. Now, to come through Holy Week and get to Friday, and we have a Good Friday service, and I hope you come. It's a sweet time every year that does focus our minds and our hearts on what's happening as we head toward Easter Sunday, and I think it's an important moment before we get to the celebration of the resurrection. But on, on Friday, our sorrow doesn't need to be an empathy for Jesus. It's, it's a sorrow over our own brokenness and sin that made the, his sacrifice necessary. Even on the cross, he was looking down and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so Jesus knew what he was headed into, but, what, but, he, but it shows he experienced the violent response to the threat of the power structures that existed in Jerusalem at the time. Now, in Ephesus, now again, I want to be careful here. And I think there are ways that what happened in Ephesus speaks to us, but I also want to be careful that we don't make a one-to-one correlation. There's a huge difference between exegesis and eisegesis. If I could just take a minute and talk about some Bible nerd stuff, Two-thirds of you are going to tune out. I'll tell you when to come back in. (laughs) Eisegesis is reading ourselves into the text and imposing our world into the text so that we insert ourselves into it. And so eisegesis can be dangerous because if we read ourselves into this text in, in Acts 19 about Ephesus, most of us are going to read ourselves into the text on the side of Paul or on the side of the city clerk saying, hey, everyone around us is reacting in confusion and anger and I'm the one that is humble and has stepped back and is kind of above the fray. And, um, and, and we'll never assign ourselves the position of Demetrius, the silversmith, of the person that's riling up the crowds. And so that would be reading our situations and ourselves into the text. That's not helpful. But instead, exegesis is good biblical practice. That's drawing meaning out of the text, saying what happened in Ephesus, what can we learn from it, and then how do we understand how that applies to our lives now. And so so I want to be careful that we do the good work of exegesis because what they were facing in Ephesus weren't the same issues that we're facing, but we can see that violence was a response to a threat against the city's idols. And in that... The two things we'll see tonight with the time that we have left is the way of this world versus the way of Jesus, and that there is a difference. The way of this world, first, leads to fear and rage. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering, said Master Yoda. (laughs) 
the trailer came out this week for episode nine, and so, <laughs> um, again, if you're not paying attention to news, um, tune in. Um, the way of this world leads to fear and to rage. In Ephesus, we know what they fear, what they were afraid of. We can see how Demetrius stoked their fears. And you, did you catch it as we read the text tonight? He gathered together the craftsmen first that worked in similar trades, and he said, hey, you know that this is how we make our money, right? Well, this guy Paul is threatening our money. There's a danger that this trade of ours may come into dis- disrepute. There's a danger that we lose our economic source and our income. And so, so he said, we need to be aware of this, and we need to react to this because we are in fear of losing our money, But he didn't stop there. He said there was also a fear of the loss of cultural identity in in Ephesus. He said beyond our trade falling into into disrepute, the temple of the great goddess may be counted as nothing, and she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all the Asia and the world worship. And so he's saying, hey, our income is at, is at risk here if Paul's teaching comes, it gets a hold on this place. And if that happens, why will people continue to flock to this city from around the world? Because our temple itself will be in disrepute. Now remember, Ephesus was a major trade route by sea and by land. There were other things going on there than just tourism to the temple. But this idea of the fear of the loss of money and the fear of the loss of their, of their worldview and what they had staked themselves on, it led to them being enraged and confused. Crying out, enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and filled with confusion. But all they knew was that they were going to rush together even if they didn't know why they were there. And so as they did, now they put up Alexander and he can't calm them down. And all that leads to is two more hours of yelling and, and confusion in that 25,000 seat amphitheater that we saw. And so then the city clerk stands up and he's able to bring some restraint and reason and bring the crowd's temperature down. He brings out the idea. He says, guys, we've got to slow down. We might get charged with rioting. He's He's saying there's a threat that if they don't get things under control, then Rome is going to send their armies in. And so here, what we see in Ephesus in many ways is the story that we see unraveling in our own city now and certainly in our nation as a whole is that people have a fear of the loss of income and finances, a fear of a loss of what they believe their culture to be, and it results in fear and rage. In many ways, this is the story of human history, is that, that we, Andy, Andy Crouch wrote in his book, um, Strength and Weakness, about this, that, that human flourishing takes a capacity for meaningful action in, in life and, and an exposure to meaningful risk. That if we, if we have a capacity for action and exposure to risk, then, then that's where human flourishing comes in, and it's biblically that's what we see. But that human history doesn't follow that, that most of us don't want the exposure to meaningful risk. And so, but we want action, and we want authority and control, and and so to be in control and to maintain the illusion that we're in control and aren't at risk, the only way to maintain that illusion is to push other people down through violence and into suffering, and to drive them through that, and that is the history of of the world in very short order, is, is people at war against each other to try to take control. The way of this world will always lead to fear and rage because of it, but the way of Jesus leads to wisdom and faith. 
I think we see that in the text as well. And this is where we'll settle in for the time we have left. Um, Four ways that we can pursue the way of Jesus to lead us into wisdom and faith. Uh, For much of this nation's history, just a, 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 a quick sidebar, for much of this nation's history, I think a Christian language and worldview have been sold as normative and even leveraged for power. I think, by and large, Christians have been lulled to sleep by believing that this was a Christian nation, even while anti-Christian realities existed and people were not treated with the dignity that, they are, that we're called to treat each other with as those who bear the image and likeness of God. What that means is that American Christians, many American Christians, don't know how to live and to function as outsiders. And so there's been a fear and a grasping for political control in the name of Christianity that can be dangerous and actually antithetical to the gospel. And we don't know how to function if we've lost a position of influence and power. That's especially true for those of us that are in the majority. And so in the meantime, I know for myself, I find those of you in this church who are, who are my ethnic minority brothers and sisters, and as I talk to pastors in, in ethnic minority contexts, there's more of a response of, of, why did you think that you were in power? Like, welcome. It's okay over here. God is still good. Jesus is still in control. And so there's some things we need to learn humbly. Um, There's also much for us to learn from Paul and throughout Acts, especially in our passage today. And Jesus said to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. So how do we navigate the clash of cultural idols and that erupt in fear and rage? And how do we do it in wisdom and faith? So four ways tonight. First, focus on the good news. Remember the beginning of this chapter. Paul was there preaching, and in Ephesus, as everywhere, it was gospel proclamation. And, and so in Acts 19, we see that he came in, and they only heard of John the baptizer's ministry. And John's ministry was saying, you are in sin, you need to repent, and God may bring hope. And so they didn't have the rest of the story. And Paul came into Ephesus and said, hey, you haven't heard about Jesus? They said, no. They said, you haven't heard of the, ba- you haven't heard of the baptism of Jesus, and you haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? And they said, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul explained to them, Jesus came as the fulfillment of what John was anticipating. Jesus was killed in our place for our sin. He was raised from death to life. That's what we celebrate on Holy Week is on Friday he was killed. On Sunday, death couldn't hold him. And he never was touched by death again. Now he reigns from the right hand of the throne of his Father in heaven. And so we can be baptized into God's family in Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the good news that Paul was proclaiming in Ephesus. And the result of that good news, it's important to remember that here and to see here that what happened then was that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What Paul didn't do in Ephesus was go and look for a fight with the temple of Artemis. We don't have any record of him standing in the streets of Ephesus and shaking his fist at the temple that was outside of the city walls. And in fact, we see his posture in Athens. That he, when he was in Athens, he postured himself entirely differently and, and learned about all of the different idols and gods of that place. That wasn't just one. It was, it was a plethora of them. And there he was able to speak into that context, but he did so with some humility, and he didn't focus simply on preaching against idols. He focused on preaching good news about Jesus. 
He, didn't, he wasn't in the streets preaching against Artemis here. Even the city leaders recognized it. Um, as the city clerk stood up, I don't know if you caught this, but he, he said, listen, you, you ought to be quiet, for you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, in verse 37. The word sacrilegious is literally, they are not temple robbers. They haven't taken anything out of this place. They're not blaspheming. They're not speaking and preaching directly against Artemis. That wasn't the ministry that Paul and his co-workers had taken up in that place. And if you remember, again, in Athens, what he did when he observed all the idols of the city, he didn't stand up in Athens in the marketplace and say, you're all pagans who are going to burn. He said, hey, I I saw one. There was one altar to an unknown god. Let, Let me tell you, about what you don't know, and about the God who created everything. See, he was boldly proclaiming the good news, and he believed that the gospel can stand on its own. This doesn't mean that Christians don't raise their voice. I think it's the opposite. Christians have the ability to speak up with a vision that's filled with hope because of the resurrection, but it's good news. I mean, Christians have a calling to lift up the beauty and dignity of all people because we believe in the Imago Dei. We have the opportunity to call out injustice when we see it because we serve a perfectly just king. We have the, the calling to show that sin doesn't lead to human flourishing but to brokenness and pain because we stand in awe of a holy God. But too often, Christians forget the news that we've been given is good. We walk around as if we forgot that Jesus is reigning right now, that he said he's going to return. A vision of God's kingdom that shows why the news is so good will help us, to, help us to keep from infusing our own idols with Christian language and help us to move toward wisdom and faith. So that's first. Just focus on good news. The second way to walk in the way of Jesus and wisdom and faith is to be careful to listen and to learn. I love that Paul wanted to march into a theater of 25,000 people who were screaming and rioting and in confusion. He's like, don't worry, I got this. <laughs> And the disciples hold him back. Paul, you're not going out there right now. He's like, I, maybe. And they say, the Asiarchs. It takes non-Christian city leaders and regional leaders who had befriended Paul and liked Paul to say, Paul, you're not going out there right now. Like, you got to love this guy's resilience that, that we've seen all the way, the, the way along. That Like, he gets dragged outside of a city and beaten with rocks and left for dead. And it says he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, continued on. <laughs> you got to love that, that he goes to Thessalonica, and we saw in Thessalonica that a riot started in Thessalonica, so they had to, they had to ditch Thessalonica, and, go, and they went 50 miles down the road to a city called Berea. And the people in Thessalonica heard that they were so close, and so they followed him there. And, then, and, and so Paul's co-workers were like, hey, you need to go, because they're going to leave us alone. They just don't like you. And so he goes on, and then he gets to Athens, which we've already mentioned. And in Athens, he's alone. He's been run out of every other place he's been. And he gets to Athens, and in Athens, he's in the marketplace, entering into conversation, learning things. And he ends up at the Areopagus, preaching the gospel there. Like, the guy had resilience and just wouldn't quit. But again, I think here we see that he was there for a couple of years, And Paul was adaptable, and he was willing to learn a context, and he was willing to learn people. He was a devoted missiologist wherever God brought him. There's something for us here that if you're a Christian, you have the calling to be a missiologist. That means you're going to study the place that God has put you, wherever that is. 
Not come in arrogantly deciding that you're the one who has all of the answers or has everything figured out, but humbly listening and learning and coming to know what people think and what people are afraid of and what they hope for. What drives a place, what, what the history of a place is, all of that is important. And, and it's important because, because God has put you there for a reason when he has. And this is what Peter says, listen, you're sojourners and exiles. So live your life so well that, that people will turn and glorify God when, on, when he comes and returns and visits us because of how well you've lived your life. And, and so there's a calling to us as sojourners and exiles to be careful, to listen, and to learn. That is the way of Jesus that will lead us to wisdom and faith. Third, trust and see that God is at work. So focus on the good news, be careful to listen and learn, and then trust and you can see in your own life and around you that God is at work. There's a theme woven throughout the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which are two volumes written by the same author. And there's a theme that you can trace all the way through of divine necessity. And so Luke uses this little Greek word, the word dei, D-E-I is is the closest we would get to it. And that means it is necessary, but he uses that as kind of a a key word to cue us in along the way throughout his gospel. And so Jesus used that word a lot of his mission to say, this is why the Father sent me. He was saying, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. He's saying, it is necessary to to go there through Samaria. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be arrested and to suffer many things at the hands of men. It is necessary for this to happen. And he kept using that language to show that that this was God-ordained, God-orchestrated mission that he had been called to. And that word happens twice in our passage today. And I think that Luke, our author, is just trying to give us a little signal at the way that these events are happening. The first one is in verse 21. Paul was resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And then he said, and after, the, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And that's the word here. It is necessary for me to see Rome. And so Paul understood it as his calling from God to eventually make it to Rome. And then the, the same language is used a little bit later on. The, the city clerk stands up and says in verse 36, seeing then that these things can't be denied, it says you ought to be quiet in, and do nothing rash in the ESV. The word ought is the same word. Hey, it's necessary for you to be quiet and not do anything rash. And I think what Luke is trying to cue us in on here is he's trying to show us God is at work here even though the Apostle Paul is a passive character in our story. Do you notice that? The only thing that Paul does in this story is he says, hey, let's go to Macedonia and Achaia, back to the churches he had planted, and after being through Jerusalem, like, I must go to Rome. We see him say that about his future journeys. Um, Then we see Paul not go into the theater because his friends prevented him. And then when the uproar ceased, he sent for the disciples and he encouraged them and, and said goodbye. Like, this is a major section. This is a long text we read tonight. You know it because you had to sit while I read it. And in that long section, the Apostle Paul has done less than in any other section we've read about him. But in the midst of that, even with Paul not being the primary active force in this passage, what we see is that God was orchestrating the whole thing. And so, and, and here in our own lives, we, we can look similarly, and there's times when, especially in the moment, it can feel like God is distant or unaware or uninvolved in our lives. We need to understand that he is always acting. 
And sometimes it's through the least expected people. None of us would have expected, you know what's going to happen is this mob's going to raise up, they're going to be screaming in confusion in the theater, and the city clerk is going to come out and just go, shh, don't do this. You don't have an actual charge. You're going to get stuck with rioting. Go home. And they're like, okay. (laughs) That is God's action in preserving the peace of the city of Ephesus. And so within this, we need to look back at, our, at, at God's work in our own lives, but also in his people throughout Scripture. We have a gift that's been given to us that shows that God is at work with his people even when they don't see the immediate results and fulfillments of his promises. The author of Hebrews wrote about this. Um, and we don't know. There's some theories that Apollos, the young upstart preacher we saw last week that had been in Ephesus, may be that author of the book of Hebrews. Um, and I think there's some possibility there. Whoever it was, the author of Hebrews wrote down in Hebrews chapter 11 what some Christians call the hall of faith, where it walks through God's work among his people. And it starts with Abel, who gave a sacrifice that was more acceptable than Cain. And it gets to Abraham, who obeyed and did all these things out of faith. And it talks about Moses leading God's people out of Egypt and the people of God in the wilderness following God. It talks about about Rahab, the prostitute, who protected the spies in Jericho. And it talks about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets and all of these people throughout the the Hebrew Bible storyline. And it says all of these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. He says, none of them saw what God was looking ahead to and the redemption that he had promised since God had provided something better for us. But we have seen it. We know what has come to his fulfillment in Christ. And so it's in light of that that the author of Hebrews says, therefore, in light of all of God's work and his, and his faithfulness to his people, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let's also lay aside every weight and the sin which, so, which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the author of Hebrews, I think I've had a tendency in the past at points, maybe you've read it this way, we can read those verses and say, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses and think about our church. We've got people all around us and that's a sweet sentiment and it's true that God has placed us among a people. But in Hebrews, what he's saying is, look at the history of how God has worked. And we don't just have the Hebrew Bible, we have the New Testament, which shows God's faithfulness to work in the life and ministry of Christ, that shows God's faithfulness to the early church through the apostles and those who are the earliest followers of Jesus. And, and we have a gift that we can see God's work and trust that if, that if the same God who created all things and led his people so faithfully that he is still at work in our lives now. That understanding, trusting and seeing that God is at work can lead us away from fear and rage and toward wisdom and faith, wherever he's placed us. And fourth and finally, the way of Jesus leads to wisdom and faith. And for us, if you're a Christian, you can bring the right-side-up kingdom into this upside-down world. Jesus' categories are upside-down from the categories this world uses. He said, hey, the last are going to be first. To lead means you're going to serve. His Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, 
He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying that this is what his kingdom would look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here, Jesus' categories are upside down from what we see. And we have, so, we have drunk so deeply of the categories and systems and structures of the world that we live in that this feels upside down rather than it feeling right side up. And so the brokenness of this world has infused itself into us. I mean, think about it this way. If you made a coffee appointment with me this week, said, hey, pastor, I really need to talk. You came in. He said, things are really hard right now. I'm getting legitimately persecuted at work. There are people that are, are lying about me and saying evil things about me, and it's all because I'm a Christian. I'm being attacked explicitly because of my faith in Jesus. And my response to you was, congratulations! <laughs> Rejoice! Aren't you so glad that, that your reward is going to be amazing in heaven? And you'd be like, is Pastor Chewy available? <laughs> like... <laughs> Anybody else would <laughs> say, so, yes, go talk to your community group leader. You should have started there. <laughs> um, we don't think this way. Jesus is reframing and rewiring everything. And, and to walk in the way of Jesus in wisdom and faith means to have our souls rewired to think first in his categories and then to have our sensibilities offended by what we see in the world around us. I mean, but, but this is difficult for us because, because when we pray, like Jesus taught his disciples to pray, later on in the same passage where it goes on, a couple chapters later in Matthew, they said, teach us to pray, and he said, this is the way you pray. Our Father who's in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And so we pray, but I think we, many of us, spend a lot of time on the give us today what we need, our daily bread, a lot of time on forgive me, Lord, and a lot of time on help me forgive others. How much time do we spend praying, your kingdom come, your will be done in D.C. as it is in heaven? How much time do we spend thinking about what that actually would mean and what it would look like? How, how that would be confronted by the idols of our city and of our nation, and that the response would be violent. And are we willing to take that on? And, and I don't just want to leave this on a broad level. I mean, it's true. We are in a city that is experiencing an, in, experiencing an increase of tensions and cultural clash. And as Christians, we're sojourners here, and exiles in a land that's not our own, and still called by God to invest into the good of the place that he has put us. It's foolish to think we can ignore the tensions that exist or to think that we can somehow live outside of it or above it. We need to work hard to understand the city without being enamored by it and all of its glory and all of its idolatry. 
and not be surprised by the fear and rage we see, but work to get underneath it. But, but I don't want to just leave us there tonight either. All of those things are important and good, but I can also tell you this. The problem is that for us to engage in a right-side-up kingdom ministry in an upside-down city means that first, our own personal kingdoms need to fall. John Newton talked about his own heart saying that there are mutinies daily in his heart. That it's a treasonous country. And when we pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, I don't think we often enough think about that God's kingdom coming and his will being done also means that our personal kingdom needs to fall. And so for every one of us, if we're going to be an ambassador of Christ's kingdom, it means also that we lay down our own personal kingdoms and it's going to confront our own personal idols. And it's only then that we'll actually be freed to engage fully in the work that he's called us to in this place. So again, let's not be surprised when we experience fear and rage around us. That should not be shocking. But let's work to get underneath it and understand what people are being threatened by and what people are afraid of and what pe- where people's hopes lie without getting sucked into it. The way of Jesus is one of wisdom and faith, and none of us can accomplish that on our own. But, but thank God that we have a great Savior and that the Spirit of God moves in us and through us, and that is our only hope, that we can actually live with wisdom and faith. Father, we need your help on this. Because every one of us has our own personal kingdoms that we don't want to let go of. Father, we need your help on this because we are in a city and in a nation and in a world that is filled with violence and fear. We believe that, that Christ is the great hope that we need. But we also know that his kingdom stands wholly outside of the kingdoms of this place. So, Father, would you forgive us when we lose sight of who you are? Would you forgive us of our own pride when we don't respond with humility to learn and to listen from from people around us, forgive us for times when we would rather settle into our own enclaves and safe harbors rather than be engaged in your work? Would you give us the boldness that we see in the Apostle Paul of seeing a large gathering of angry people in a theater and the boldness to be willing to say, I'll head in, but also surround us with friends who are wise that will direct our path? Father, in all of it, would you help us to remember that the news that we have is so good and to represent that with the joy and life and vibrancy that you call us to. And thank you that the week ahead gives us a chance to focus in on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry and and his death and resurrection on Sunday. And pray that you would focus our hearts through the week. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.